Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are, like I said a minute ago, halfway through our study of Genesis. And so far we've been following a a lot of chapters on this guy named Abraham. But today we're gonna shift gears to his son named Isaac. Now the thing about Abraham and Isaac is that Abraham got multiple chapters about his life and all the things that was happening with him. And Isaac really only gets a couple chapters. We're gonna be finishing up our study of Isaac today. We'll reference him a little bit next week. But he only kind of covers just two or three chapters before we start getting into his family and specifically um, Jacob and uh, 12 sons who eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. But in the short three or four chapters that we have of his life, a lot of things are said and a lot of things can um, teach us uh, about the importance of um, how faith is walked out from a father and a mother and then passed down to their children. Okay, so Isaac watched his father, Abraham, walk out a life of faith. And in that experience of growing up with a father like Abraham, Isaac learned a lot about faith. But he didn't just learn about faith, he learned a lot about his father's mistakes as well. So as we're studying that today, hopefully that's one of the big takeaways for us, is that in studying Isaac, we understand the role that as parents, fathers, mothers, and even if you don't have children, spiritual fathers and mothers, because somebody's always watching, the role and the responsibility that falls on our shoulders to be able to walk out our lives of faith in a way that can be um, reflected in a positive way to the generations below us. So last week we finished off with Isaac and he was um, bound on Mount Moriah. Uh, And his father had heard from the Lord, okay, I want you to sacrifice your son. And so Abraham obeyed, and he went to what we're told is this uh, mountain called Moriah. Now, I didn't really mention this last week, but I felt like it was an important thing to mention this week just for reference point. Um, A lot of times when you read through the Bible, it's easy to kind of get distracted because you're not familiar with these places. Now, if I were to sit in here and I were to describe something to you that was um, landmarked in Tallahassee, if I was going to say that an event took place at Lake Ella, in your mind, you're already starting to picture like Lake Ella and the places around it and, you know, the, the fact that there's there's ducks and geese everywhere. And there's always like a strange guy sitting on a park bench somewhere doing like writing poetry or wearing some weird out. You, you get in your mind, you're visualizing that there's these things. If I, you know, down at Ruby Diamond Auditorium, you guys are already starting to picture, okay, I know what that is. Or famous landmarks uh, where restaurants were, were um, you know, Governor Square Mall. You're starting to picture in your mind the things around that place and you get a reference point for that. But as we read the Bible, it's such a faraway place, unless you've been there and seen the locations, it's hard to kind of track where things are. So as we're reading through Genesis, I want to take the opportunity to kind of help you put the pieces together mentally on where some of this stuff is happening. I bring this up because when God tells Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah was a very specific place. Now, it wouldn't become a specific place for I don't know, probably another couple hundred years. But eventually, Israel would become a nation. 
And Israel would eventually say, um, hey, we don't want God to be our king, we want a king for ourselves. And this guy named Saul would rise up and he would become king and he'd be an evil king. And then God would raise up another king and his name is David. You guys kind of familiar with the story. And then David had a son named Solomon and Solomon decided to build a temple for God. It was based off of the tabernacle structure that God gave Moses. But I want you to kind of mentally track through what we're doing. Like God told Abraham, I want you to go to this mountain and I want you to make a sacrifice to your son. And then right before it happens, God provides an animal to sacrifice. And then you fast forward a few years and then you've got this guy named Moses who's bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and then they settle into Israel and they become a nation and then they have this King Saul and then there's David and then there's Solomon and Solomon says, hey, I wanna build a temple for God, a place of worship. Where would be the best place to put this temple? How about we put the temple on Mount Moriah? Solomon's temple sat right on top of Mount Moriah. And Jewish tradition tells us that inside the temple, inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant actually sat on top of the rock that Abraham put Isaac on. But it doesn't stop there. Because after Solomon built his temple and Israel rebelled and eventually Babylon came in and destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground and then they were in captivity for 70 years and then they were released back um, under Persian rule to rebuild the temple. They rebuilt the temple and then Jesus shows up and Jesus is there walking around and the temple is there. The temple was rebuilt on top of the ruins of Solomon's temple which was built on top of Mount Moriah. And around 70 AD the Romans came in and they burned the temple that was around at Jesus' time to the ground to the point where it was completely decimated. And then a few hundred years pass forward through that, that temple mount structure existed. You can go to Jerusalem today and you can see a corner of the wall, the western wall or the wailing wall that was, that was still standing at the time of Jesus. But if you follow that wall up and you look at the very top of it, there's a new structure built on top of it called the Dome of the Rock. It's a huge mosque, gold dome. If you, if you Google Jerusalem, I guarantee you the first picture is gonna pop up is that mosque with the gold dome. Inside that dome, at the center of it, the dome of the rock, is the rock that Abraham put his son on. So when you read through this, all these, this like in the same way that we think of like this town is our neighborhood and we know the nooks and crannies and where you used to run and play and where big events happened, that's what's happening in this country. It's not Israel yet, it's still the land of Cana. There's Canaanites living in it. It won't become Israel until multiple years in the future where eventually the children of Israel will be freed from bondage of Egypt. They'll follow Moses in, Moses won't go into the promised land, they'll follow um, the, uh, Joshua in and the nation will set up and then they'll start setting up tribes and at that point, it will become a nation, but a lot of the places at the point at which Israel comes in and sets up a nation are being established Today, like last week, we talked about a place called Beersheba. That was a town that kept its name when Israel moved in. 
This is, this is family. This is, this is a country. This is land that God promised to Abraham and has rich, rich, rich history, and all of it's connected. That is not necessarily important to our um, understanding of where we're going today, but I think it should help our reference for when we're reading the Word of God that, man, th- th- these are real people who lived in a real place, and this place still exists. You can go to these places today and walk these streets and see these rocks. These things still exist. It is as real as you could possibly imagine. And I say that because I want your faith to be stirred, that this is not just some foreign thing that we just kind of adopted and we've never been to, we never believed. This is living, breathing history. We're tapping into it and we are a part of it, we're told by Paul, through Jesus we're grafted in through the line of Abraham and we're heirs of that promise. That's a big deal. And that's why we're reading Genesis. Amen? Okay, so what I want you to do is I want you to go to Genesis chapter 24. And as we're reading through 24, 25, 26, we're not going to read the whole thing. 24 is long. It's like 67 verses. But a good portion of that is a repetition. We'll get to that in a minute. So what we're going to do is I'm going to hit the highlights. I'm going to walk you through the story, but we're going to cover those three chapters today. And what I want us to take away with today is that for better or worse, children always learn about faith first and foremost within the home from their moms and dads. That's a heavy weight sitting on our shoulders, but we can't ignore it. So let's start off today, Genesis chapter 24. We're going to go to verse 1. Verse 1 says, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charged over all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Okay, now before we go any further, let me just give you a little reference point. Why does Abraham ask this guy to put his hand under his thigh? Now, that word thigh is also translated in Hebrew as loins. So essentially what he's asking him to do, you know how we would swear today, like when you go to court or whatever, you put your hand on the Bible and you swear, I swear on the Bible. I'm swearing on the promises of the Bible. I'm swearing on this word, what Abraham is asking this guy to do. And it was in line with the customs, but essentially what he's doing is put your hand under my thigh as a symbolic gesture that you are swearing on the seed of Abraham. You are swearing on the promise that God gave me that you're going to find my son a wife so that the promise that God gave us can actually come about. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing. I want you, in the same way, uh, I, I swear, tell the truth, the whole truth, not the truth. I want you to swear on the greatest thing that we have, which is not a Bible. We've got the promise. So put your hand under my thigh. I want you to promise to me that this is what you're going to do. And the guy agrees. Verse 4, he says, but, um, so he promises not to take a daughter from the Canaanites, but will go to my country. So he says, go back to my hometown, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. So the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. 
The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give you this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from theirs. This is what God promised me. This is what I'm asking you. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. Just promise me that. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So Abraham sent his servant to find a wife, and he sent his servant back to his hometown for two main reasons, okay? The first reason why he asked the servant to go back to his hometown is because, well, Canaanite women weren't the marrying type, right? What evidence do you have for that, Marshall? Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? You don't want your son marrying a woman from this town. Okay? They're not the marrying type. So what do you do? Well, you could have your son go back to the hometown, but the problem with that is God told Abraham to come out from that culture. So in Abraham's eyes, asking his son to go back to that culture is a going back on the promise. I can't go back to that stuff. But if you go to that culture and you find a woman who is willing to come out of that culture like we were, then that's the kind of woman that I want my son to marry. I want my son to be the kind of person who is equally yoked, is on par with where we are as a family of faith. Okay? I don't want my son to have to go back to the world to find something. I want my son to find somebody who also is willing to come out of the world, leave and forsake everything behind to step into something new because that's the kind of family we are. That's the whole reason why God asked Abraham to mark his entire family by circumcision. This idea that from now moving forward, no part of this family is gonna reach back into the world, reach back to the old way of doing things and say, here's how we're gonna move forward and succeed. From now on, everything that we do as a family is led by faith and what God says. And if people wanna leave and forsake like we did and join us, then that's the caliber of people I want next to us. You follow? This is what Abraham is asking his servant to do. Now, this is not the last time that we'll see this principle at work because Paul teaches this principle in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he uses the phrase, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's familiar with that. I've, I've mentioned a couple times. We're going to read 2 Corinthians um, after this book, so we'll come around to that. But there's this, there's this line that we walk as Christians where part of our responsibility as disciples is to make sure that we are available to love and serve non-believers so that we can preach the gospel and show them the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to be among non-believers on a regular basis so they can see the impact of Christ in our lives and so that we can love people as well as we possibly can, just like Jesus did. He spent all of his time around tax collectors and prostitutes, people that nobody wanted to spend time with. That's the kind of life that we live. We surround ourselves with people who are lost and sick, and we shine light in dark areas. But... Paul teaches that there's the other side of this line is that we can become so 
yoked or connected or hitched to folks who have different allegiances to a different kingdom, that ultimately that relationship is going to cause strife in our life and keep us from being able to walk the line of discipleship. So while we are simultaneously supposed to be serving and loving non-believers, we are not supposed to be hitching ourselves in life in such a way that we are so close to people who have differing um, perspectives on culture and life um, and, and, and where we're headed after we die, that when they make a decision, it yokes almost like two um, cattle that are yoked together to farm a field. When one moves this way, the other one has no choice but to move. That's what Paul is warning us against. And this is predominantly seen in the context of marriage. Do not marry a non-believer. Look, I understand. I've met so many people who are convinced, no, no, you, you don't understand. I love this person, and we're going to be different. I believe that you believe that. But at some point, you have to make a decision whether you believe what this thing says, and this is how you live your life, or you believe that you know better than this, and you're an exception to a rule that's not in here. The rule for believers is do not yoke yourself with somebody who does not have the same fundamental principles that you do because one day you're going to have kids and there is going to be an argument in your home about what you do on Sunday mornings. It's coming. And Paul gives us the wisdom to avoid that by telling us not being unequally yoked to unbelievers within the context of marriage, but also business practices. It is unwise to go into business in a way where you are yoked to unbelievers whose driving force is not the kingdom of God, but money. There will be a culture clash. If it hasn't happened yet, just wait a little longer. This also has to do with friendships. Yes, you can have lots of non-believing friends, but if you yoke yourself up with a non-believer, at some point in your life when you're feeling low, you're going to be tempted to want to sit next to them and listen to their counsel rather than bury your face in this and listen to its counsel. And I promise the wisdom flows from this and not from the mouth of a non-believer. So be careful the way you yoke yourself in relationships and friendships. This is what Abraham's trying to get his servant to understand. This is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. The convictions are eventually going to clash whether you want them to or not. It will always erupt. And without fail, what's usually going to happen is that somebody's going to compromise their convictions, and it's most often you. Let's pick up the story in verse 10. Genesis 24 Verse 10, so the servant took 10 of his master's camels, that's a lot of camels, and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Naor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time when women would come out to draw water. And he said, so he prays, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please Grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of the water 
and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. I love the innocence of this dude's prayer, like he's telling God something that he doesn't know. So God, just so you know where I am, I am currently standing outside of a well, and I don't know if you can see, but women are coming. So let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and when she says, drink, and I will also water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So before he had even finished speaking, praying, this girl named Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Naor, Abraham's brother, oh, that's fun, they're second cousins, <laughs> came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came back up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little drink a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, oh, drink up, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when he had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with how much a camel drinks, but they can, they can put away about 30 gallons in about 15 minutes, and there's 10 of them. So this is not like a hey, I'll do a quick little five-minute chore. This probably took over an hour just to water the camels. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all of his camels. So she's just running suicides between the well and these camels, carrying a jar on her shoulder. I mean, this is like the original CrossFit girl. The man gazed at her in, this is what y'all would do. The man gazed at her in silence. Why? Because she's doing exactly what you just prayed. Lord, I don't know if you can see me, but here's my prayer. Before you even finish praying, she's walking up and she's running sprints between your camels and this water, and he's just sitting there in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So this servant, let's back up to verse 10. This servant is the first person that we come across in the Bible who proactively asks for divine guidance at a critical juncture. Up until this point, every other person who has an experience with God, God initiated it. God showed up to the person and said, hey, here's the thing that you need. You don't know you need it, but I'm going to do this. And people respond in prayer. But this guy, this unnamed servant, he initiates, he knows what he needs. He comes before the Lord and he prays, God, this is what I need. And I want you to answer my prayer within the normal parameters of culture. And this is what's beautiful about this. He doesn't ask for a rainbow or for the Red Sea to be parted. 
He doesn't ask for the woman to jump out of the well on the water. You know, he doesn't ask for the woman to come in um, and, uh, you know, with this huge um, um, miracle right behind her. Like, you know, she's taking staffs and throw it on the ground. Let me know the woman who's got, like, red eyes. Like, there's, there's no miracle or, or wild thing happening. This guy just simply asks, hey, Lord, I need some help. And so, here's how I feel like I'll know that you're answering my prayer. It's a woman who's going to do what women are here to do. The woman who comes and offers me water and offers water to my camels, that's going to be the kind of woman that my servant is, or my master is looking for. Why? Because that's the kind of girl who's got some manners. I'm looking for the kind of person who's not just parting the Red Sea miraculous. I'm looking for someone who's kind and has enough manners to want to serve somebody who is a guest. That's the kind of person that I know my master would love. And before he even finishes his prayer, she shows up. She walks up as he's saying, Amen, Rebecca. Now, the timing of that we might miss if we're reading it too quickly, but the reality of it is, is that if she showed up as soon as he finished praying, that means Rebecca was already heading to the well before the servant started praying, which means that God already knew what the servant was going to pray and was already willing to answer the prayer before the prayer was asked, which is very interesting and should shape our theology of prayer. What prayer is not, prayer is not an invitation for God to join your plans, which is what we treat it like most days. We got a thing that we want, there's something that we need, we think God is unaware of it, and we start giving him the details like it's a marketing pitch and we just, we need him to get on board because this is good for him and it's good for me. And if you could just see my perspective, things are going to be pretty good for your kingdom if I could get my way. Prayer is not asking God to join your team. Prayer is not permission for God to begin working. It's not like the fire of a pistol at the beginning of a race. All right, God, and now you can start working because I have initiated prayer. That's not how prayer works. That's not how the Bible teaches us prayer works. That's how a lot of Christians think prayer works. That's a lot of how, to, a lot of how a lot of pastors on television teach us that prayer works, but that's not how the Bible tells us that prayer works. The Bible teaches us that prayer is a confession that we are completely unable and incapable of doing anything without Him. Prayer is the confession that, whoa, (laughs) that's funny, because that is not a cheap device. Anyway, prayer is the confession that everything that you have, your skill set, your toolbox is inadequate, you're confessing to him that you are aware of that, and you are asking God, can I get on board with your thing so that whatever needs to be accomplished can be accomplished because my skill set is lacking and inadequate and I need you. 
So prayer, first and foremost, is a confession that I, I'm not able and I need you. That's first and foremost what it is. Second, prayer is an invitation and permission for you to join His plans and His work. The first posture is this idea that if I could just get God to get in on this thing, then this thing would be blessed. Have you ever thought that rather than trying to get God in on your thing, it would be more fruitful if you spent your time trying to get in on God's thing? So rather than wasting your time building plans and asking Him to bless it, rather you go before Him and say, hey, you know, I know you created the universe, like you created this concept of light and dark. We still don't know how brains completely work, and you figured that out long ago. How about maybe you've got a plan for what I'm supposed to do? Maybe there's a thing, there's a way that we're supposed to work out. Maybe this thing that I went through that caused me great pain and suffering, from my perspective, maybe I'm looking at it wrong. Maybe this season of my life that I hate and I look back on and I don't even want to think about anymore, maybe I'm looking at it the wrong way. Is there a different way that you're looking at it? Can you show me from your perspective how I'm supposed to see this thing? I want to get on your team and join your things, building your stuff. I promise it is a more fruitful relationship if your prayers sound like that. Rather than God, send down the blessings. You know what God's waiting for? For you to get on your face. That's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for a posture of humility rather than a posture of pride. He's waiting for you in prayer by faith to say, I don't have this figured out. I don't know what I'm doing, but you do. Please give me eyes to see and ears to hear. That's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for brokenness. And that's what this guy prayed. I don't have the capacity to know who is qualified to marry my master's son. So please show me what to do. And what happens next, chapter 24, verses 22 through the rest, through about 67, is that after this initial just awestruck, he's in silence, the camel's finished getting the water, and the servant, he has this aha moment. He realizes, man, God hasn't just answered the prayer like he answered the prayer. This is the one. This is the one. What does he do? He starts reaching in his bag and pulling out rings and gold bracelets and forcing it on the girl's wrists and fingers. Right? Now that's a proposal. Right? Just one ring. How about a necklace? Shoving. It won't fit. Just keep get it on there. He starts shoving all this jewelry on her and starts showering her with all this praise because he knows that God has answered his prayer. So Rachel, oh, excuse me, Rebecca, takes um, him home to meet her parents. And when Rebecca and the servant get home, um, the fir- before Rebecca's parents can even say anything, the servant starts saying, says, hold on, before you say anything, let me just tell you what happened. And this is why this chapter is so long. Because the servant, when he goes to Rebecca's family, he retells the entire story word for word, every single thing that happens, detail by detail to her family. Now, as you're reading this, it's easy to get fatigued. And if you know that we were reading this, and you spent this week, and you were, okay, we're probably going to hit Genesis 24, and you're reading through this. Um, about halfway through, you're like, all right, I already read this. Why are we reading this exact same thing again? It's easy to get fatigued. The question I would want you to ask yourself when you're reading through this is, why did the writer of Genesis do this? Why do we need the same information twice? 
We know what happened. Wasn't it enough to say the servant went to Rebecca's family and retold every amazing thing that happened, and then they had a lovely dinner? Why did the writer feel it was important to retell the exact same story that he just said? Well, he did this for two main reasons. One, to capture the joy from the servant and the awe that he had that God answered his prayer. If you've got an entire chapter and the story's at the front, and then the second half of the chapter is the guy telling the exact same story again, what's the purpose of that? The purpose is to capture the joy of the guy telling the story. Man, you're never going to believe what God did. Listen to this. And then he did this, and then he did this. And you're like, yeah, I know, I was there. I know, but wasn't it wild? And then he did this. I was, yeah, I saw it. No, but seriously, wasn't it amazing? There is a sense of awe that most of us don't even know exists. Because we live in a culture where all of the awe and the overwhelmed feelings have been stripped from us. Because you can't go to a movie without having um, a thousand bloggers give you opinions on how you're supposed to think about the movie before you ever walk in. You can't, look, uh, when, when some of these major blockbuster movies were coming out, like the, the latest Star Wars movies or when the, um, the, the latest Avengers movies were coming out, like, I didn't want to have any spoilers, and so I had to just delete all of my social media accounts because I can't even scroll through Instagram without some fool thinking it's funny to throw the spoiler of the movie up in front of me. And what that does is it robs me of that sense of, oh, man. Look, I may be pushing 40, but I really like that feeling still. I like being blown away. I like being caught off guard. I like being overwhelmed. I really like it when God does it, but there's a part of me as a human who just likes it when God's creations do that to me. Like when I see somebody who was just a really tough guy and didn't want anything to do with church get saved, that blows my mind. I'm going to high for like a week when that happens. Because there's a sense of awe and overwhelming feeling inside of me that when that happens, you're just like, yes, I am a tiny little peanut on this great expanse of space. I am meaningless. God is doing everything. He is working things together for the good of his creation. And I am an imbecile over here thinking, I don't even know what I'm thinking half the time. And he is orchestrating and working things thousands of years in the past and thousands of years in the future. And I'm upset because my batteries died on this device. And every moment in his grace, he gives you these, these, these little, little senses of awe of being like reminding you how small you are, like going to the ocean, just standing on the beach and just staring at how big it is. You know, like you, if you live in the city, when was the last time that you remember looking up in the stars and actually seeing the stars? Like, I've, I live out in the middle of nowhere woods, and if I turn all of my house lights off, I can walk out, into the, and I can see the Milky Way. And when I stare at it, I feel this sense of awe, like every one of those dots is a star or a planet. There's stuff going on out there that I don't know about, and it makes me feel small, and I like that. Because not only do I feel small, my problems feel small. And uh, my life is put in perspective that I am one part of God's plan. I am not the center of the universe. 
So why does the writer record the guy's story? Because the writer is trying to get us to understand the feeling of awe and overwhelming joy that he had in this moment that God answered a prayer by having a girl give his camels water. I guess the question for us today is when was the last time you were overwhelmed by God? When was the last time that you were blown away by God answering prayer? Because the reality of it is he answers prayer on a regular basis. Some of our prayers are pretty ridiculous, but the ones that are prayed with his desires and will in mind get answered every time with a yes and amen, and if you're paying attention to that, it will blow your mind. So the first reason why he records this is for the sense of awe, but the second is to emphasize the importance of knowing your testimony. Reading this story, the guy recounting what just happened, tells us that this guy was actively aware of what God was doing, and it communicates to us that a testimony is something that we should be aware of. You should be paying attention to the things that God is doing on your behalf, in your life, and in your heart all the time on a regular basis. If you're, if you're oblivious to them, it doesn't mean they're not happening. It just means you're being ignorant and you're not paying attention to them. But this section of Scripture, almost 67 verses long, reminds us that a testimony is just simply a story of what God has done, and it gives details to the people around us of how God has worked in our life and what He has changed inside of our heart. It demonstrates an awareness, um, this sense of, man, I am excited because I know what God is doing. I'm aware of it. I can see every time it happens, and it makes me excited. Why is that important? Is it important just to be excited for the sake of being excited? No. Because excitement and awareness is contagious. I would argue that one of the reasons why you enjoy, why you keep coming back here every Sunday when you could go to any number of 500 other churches here in town, I I like to think that part of it is because you enjoy watching me get excited talking about this. Because, man, I really do. There's a lot of things in life that excite me, but none of them excite me as much as teaching this Bible. I really, really get excited about this. Last week, I got a little too excited. I started shouting at y'all, and then you came back anyway. I was hooting and hollering about, like, resurrection, and then you guys came back for more next week, or this week. The, the, The idea that I get excited about this, hopefully, by faith, gets you excited and, and the awareness that I try to express in reading this and living a life of faith hopefully catches on to you through this message series so that you can say, man, if he, it, 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 this is just a, it's a genealogy. I don't see how this is exciting at all. But you could go home after hearing me talk about it. You're like, man, I, there's, there's stuff in here. I got to find some stuff in here. I want the excitement that, that seems like it's bubbling out of him. Something's going on. He sees something that I don't see. I want that too. Because as humans, most of us have a hard time doing or obeying something until we see it modeled in front of us. And so if I can model in some small way the excitement of what this thing does when you read it, hopefully you'll go home and you read it for yourself. That's the goal. That you're not just getting fed once a week, but you're going home and you're reading this on a regular, every night you're cracking this open. God, what do you have for me today? And, and, and for some of you, it's totally okay. You just start like this. All right, where are we? Oh, Jeremiah, this is going to be interesting. Threatened with death. Again, here we go. 
as you grow, you're like, oh, I don't know, read about Jeremiah being threatened for death again. How about we go to something else? We go to Psalms. Let's, let's, let's read through some things and build on it. How about we go to Luke? Or we can read Acts. Or we'll read just the epistles. But the concept that things are going to build on each, on each other um, it sparks excitement because it reminds you where you are in the story and that every single thing is connected. And that's kind of why I set up today with this idea of Mount Moriah that it's an event, it's a place, but it has connections all throughout Scripture. It's a specific place that God cares about um, in geological history. So, I think the writer of Genesis, who we believe is Moses, captured this event twice because he wanted to emphasize the importance of a testimony. And I want to emphasize the importance of a testimony because a testimony demonstrates that you're aware of what God is doing and it stirs people around you. If you can share with others what God is doing, then they are more willing to be aware of what God is doing in their life. If they see how you talk about God, they have a desire to want to talk about God that way as well. All right, so after this whole situation, after he recounts all this, he talks to Rebecca's family. She agrees to leave. The family lets her go. She leaves. She meets Isaac. They see in a field. I mean, it's a real Princess Bride situation. They're kind of, you know, loving each other and fall in love, and they get married, um, and then it's time to have children, and there's a little bit of uh, um, issues because she is barren. She can't have children. So uh, uh, Isaac prays, and let's read about that, Genesis 25. So jump over to the next chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 24, uh, 21. This is funny. The first half of 25 is just genealogies. I told you not to skip it, and here I am skipping it. Go read it for homework. Abraham lived 175 years. That's a lot of years, huh? He was an old guy when he died, 175 years old. So after that, Isaac gets married. It's time for them to have children. Verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So she was barren, Isaac prayed, and she conceived children. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? Meaning, if this is what you wanted, God, then why is there a struggle on the inside of me? Now, this is, this is before um, machines that would tell you how many children you had inside of you, and if they were boys or girls, right? We take for granted how much modern medicine just kind of, oh yeah, what do you, do you want to know the sex of the baby? Yeah, sure, why not? You know, let's do a gender reveal on Instagram. There's none of that, right? There's no machines that tell this lady what's going on inside of her. She's just got a big old belly, and it looks like a war is going on inside of her. Because we're told these kids are, they are wrestling, all right? So she prays, why did you do this to me? So she inquires to the Lord, and this is what the Lord says to her. Two nations are in your womb. Holy smokes. I wonder how big those babies were if they were described by nations. Two 15-pound men are in inside your womb. Two peoples from within shall be divided. They're inside of you. The one shall be stronger than the other, but the other shall serve the younger. So the Lord gives her prophecy. And when her days to give birth were complete, behold, there were twins inside of her womb. The first came out, and this is great, I love this. The first came out all red. All his body was like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. And afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand was holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. 
When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in his tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, hey, let me eat some of that, some of that red stew, <laughs> for I'm exhausted. I'm literally exhausted. <laughs> Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said to him, sell me your birthright right now. And Esau said, well, I'm about to die of what youth is a, uh, use is a birthright to me. And Jacob said, swear to me. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That verse in Hebrew, it's a little confusing. It sounds like he despised his birthright after that, but the way that's written in Hebrew tells us that Esau from his childbirth despised his birthright. He never cared about it. He never thought anything of it. So in this chapter, a lot of things are told to us about Isaac and his family. The first is that Rebekah was barren, and it's interesting because she wasn't the first woman who was barren. Sarah was barren. And what's fascinating to me is that God offers a promise to the family line of Abraham and says, I'm going to make many nations come out of your family line, but all of the women are going to be barren. Does this seem weird? Like, I'm going to bless you with so many kids, but your wife can't have children. What? I don't understand. I believe that God did this way. He deliberately chose. He knew the women would be barren, and he chose these women for these men and put these families together to demonstrate his power. The point was, I promise that through this family, all the nations are going to be blessed, and you're going to have many children, but it's only going to happen by my power, not yours. At the end of the day, when all of this takes place, you're not going to just say, well, man and a woman can have children, so it's not really like God had anything to do with it anyway. No, none of these women could have children until God intervened and did what he did. Well, well, Rebecca gets pregnant, and she has twins, and this is the other thing we learn from this family, that they are fighting and struggling from inside the womb. And the fact that these boys are struggling from inside the womb should shape our understanding and viewpoint on life. I don't care what your politics are. The Bible is clear that human life begins at conception, not birth. Human life begins the moment a child is conceived. And treating that child differently inside the womb than you do outside the womb is sin. You tracking with me? Abortion is sin. Now, if you have experienced that and you've made decisions in your life, there is grace and there's mercy and there is forgiveness. God grants you, and, and if you're a guy and you have paid for someone to have, there is mercy and there is grace and there is forgiveness. But at some point in your life, you have to decide, am I going to think the way the Bible tells me to think because this is what God says is wise, or am I going to follow what my heart thinks? And what we see from these two boys after they're born is that their level of respect for the things of God is vastly different. The birthright in the Bible was considered a thing of honor. It was a representation of God's blessing. It was essentially saying God's hand is on this thing. So treating it like Esau did 
with no respect for the birthright was essentially Esau saying, saying, I have no respect for God and his ways. Esau was the kind of man who was governed by his feelings. Jacob was the kind of man who was more level-headed but deceptive, but he had respect for God's ways. And that's what's interesting. We, we would quickly write Jacob off just because he's the deceptive type. I don't want to even deal with that kind of person. But even within that personality type, he had a respect for the things of God. And in short, the story communicates to us that one child treasured God's ways and one did not. And this, this um, dichotomy between these two boys is mirrored in the same struggle we saw last week with Ishmael and Isaac. And the principle that Paul tries to get us to understand that in the heart of every person is an Ishmael and Isaac or an, Isaac, an Esau and a Jacob. There's this war between the flesh and the spirit that when you become a Christian, there is this desire to want to do things your way or the way things have always been done or do things God's way. And every single moment you have to measure what you're going to decide against this war inside you. Do you trust God and his ways or do you follow your own heart and trust what you think is right? Well, by the end of Genesis, by Genesis 26, Isaac is now an old man. We've got much more history on Abraham, like I told you, than we do in Isaac. But what we see in 26 is very telling of what Isaac grew up with. He saw his father demonstrate a lot of faith, but we also, he also saw his father make a lot of mistakes. And those mistakes start playing themselves out in Isaac's life. So let me read you just a couple of verses from 26. Verse 1 says, so there was a famine in the land. Now you're probably thinking, okay, another famine. Um, but the writer of Genesis reminds us, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So a new famine, different, different famine. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, was this the same Abimelech that Abraham knew? Um, most commentators are split on this. Some people think this is the same guy, and some people think this is his son. So Abraham had some run-ins within Abimelech. It was the same guy where he told Abimelech, oh, Sarah, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. That was Abimelech. Isaac comes across this Abimelech. Some people think it's the same one, some people think it's not. I don't really have a strong opinion either way. I like to think it's the same guy, but there's no strong case either way. Verse 2, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. All right, so there's a famine in the land, and the first thing God tells Isaac is, don't go down to Egypt. Why is that important? Because Abraham went down to Egypt the last time there was a famine. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and I'll give to your offsprings all these lands, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, and my statutes. So Isaac, he settled in Gerar, didn't go down to Egypt. And when the men of this place said to him about his wife, asked him about his wife, she, he said, oh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place would kill me because of Rebecca, because she was so attractive in appearance. Let's pause right there. As Isaac watched his father Abraham live by faith, but he also watched his father Abraham make lots of mistakes. The first is that when a famine hit the land, Abraham's first instinct was to run to Egypt, run to the world, go find provision from the world. Which is why God told Isaac as soon as the famine hits, don't do like your father did, because I know that's what you want to do. And then as soon as he obeys and he gets into a land, he gets in a little trouble. This is the same situation, same guy, Abimelech, maybe. He comes in, Isaac tells the men of the city, no, this isn't my wife, this is my sister. We see these same patterns in Isaac because his father was Abraham. 
And I bring this up because since the dawn of time, children all over the world have watched their parents succeed and fail. And they've picked up and they've learned habits, good and bad, from what they watch their parents do. Those demonstrations of faith are awesome because the kids get to see the parents stand up for God's ways and demonstrate faith in big ways like Abraham did. But they also learn these behaviors that are bad habits, the things that need to avoid. Positive or negative, no matter what it is, we all learn by example, and the example starts first and foremost in the home. And this is the important lesson I want us to walk away with today. Nobody's life is perfect. You're not going to leave here not making mistakes and unfortunately passing some of those mistakes down to your kids. But what you can do is model repentance when those mistakes happen. Model faith every chance you get. In this house, we trust God and we trust God's ways. But sometimes I as the dad, as the mom, I get it wrong. And you've got to know what it looks like and what to do when I get it wrong. All right? Just a small anecdote to help you understand what I'm talking about. I took my family to the beach on Friday. We spent the whole day at the beach, and as you can imagine, you know, it's, it's fun. It was good weather and everything, but most of the day, I was just kind of grumpy. I was in a bad mood, and because I'm the dad, I kind of put a cloud over the whole day. I was snippy. I'm aware of this about myself. If things don't go exactly the way I want them to, like umbrellas pulling themselves out of the sand and flying down the beach, it kind of sets me off a little bit. I know you're not like me, but this is how I am. I'm aware of this. On the car ride home, we're riding back, I turn the radio down, I ask all the kids to look at me, and I say, look, I know that I was grumpy today. I know that you know I was grumpy today. I'm sorry. Here's some of the reasons why I was frustrated and grumpy, but you need to know what it looks like not just for me to fail and fall flat on my face and be a jerk, but what I know God is doing inside of me and how to respond to that. So I am sorry, I repent. And all of them said, oh, we forgive you, Dad. We love you. I didn't do it for the I love you or forgive you. I did it because I needed to clear my heart and I wanted them to see what repentance looks like. And that is important as you grow and raise children. You can't just model the good stuff and pretend they don't see the bad stuff. They see everything and you've got to give them context for how to handle things when you're wrong. Now, even though Isaac made some mistakes as we wrap up chapter 26, and this is where we're going to finish today, verses 12 through 33, I'm not going to read it, but it, the, the chapter 26 starts with a famine and ends with this phrase, we have found water, because Isaac made it his mission to dig wells in the land they set foot in. He chose not to go back to Egypt. He didn't put down roots in the world. He said, we're going to stay here, and we're going to make provision for what we need to so that we can survive here. And one of the things that means is making deep wells so that we can provide and uh, allow ourselves to sustain and have water out here where we're living. So Isaac made it a mission of him, himself, and his life to dig deep wells so that his family could prosper for many generations moving forward. And a lot of these wells were still in service when Israel, a couple hundred years later, moved into the land and set it up as a nation. So as we're closing today, this is what I want to do. I just want to ask you a few questions in, re in, in response or reflection to what we read today. Watching the life of Isaac and Rebecca and his children and Abraham and how faith was modeled and how mistakes were modeled and how they were handled, how are you modeling faith in your family and in your life? How are you modeling faith to the people around you that you love to your children, to the people at work.
How are you modeling repentance in your failures? So how are you modeling faith and how are you modeling repentance? And then going just a step further, asking asking yourself, what testimonies are you sharing and what testimonies are are you aware of? If you sat down with somebody and they said, what has God been doing in your life? Would you even have a response? Would you know what to say? Are you aware of God's fingerprints on your life? And then finally, in response to the way that Isaac felt it necessary to dig wells so his ancestors could survive, what wells, in a spiritual sense, are you currently digging that your children and the people that you love can pull from? As a dad, what habits are you um, initiating in your own personal life that will provide um, for your children? What decisions are you making? What things are you saying no to so that your children can say yes to other things? What habits are you cultivating in your life, spiritually speaking, that will allow children's, your children's, your children's, children's to dig from that well that you've dug spiritually? Reflect on those questions as we close today and then take communion. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.